Well, this morning, the rest of us are going to return to a discussion about fighting. Virtuous fighting. How weird is that? To come to church and you're going to hear the pastor urge you to be a fighter. Um, The Christian pastor is going to plead with you, has been praying for you, that you would be a, a good fighter, that you would be a good warrior. It's very odd, very strange, that you would be committed to contending. Very strange, especially in our kind of religious climate, where the ultimate Christian virtue is niceness. It is bizarre. You might not think it's bizarre because you're so used to this culture, but it's bizarre that I'm going to say these things. That you've got to fight. And I don't mean physically, I don't mean with physical weapons, but nevertheless, with words and ideas to, to, to do battle, and that it's, that it's valiant and it's virtuous and it's important that we as a church need to be committed to contending. That's not nice. The ultimate Christian virtue is niceness. And while it's nice to be nice, it's actually not the ultimate Christian virtue. The ultimate Christian virtue is love. Old Testament teaches that. New Testament teaches that. The greatest Christian virtue is love, and we can, and I hope, contend for the gospel because of love. And out of love, that we are called to to love God, who's given us the gospel. And we are called to love our neighbors who need the gospel to be the gospel. And so I hope what we're doing here in our study of Jude, that's where we are, if you uh, haven't already picked up on that, the second to the last book of the Bible, it's just a small little letter. That's why we want to do this. Because we, we love God. We want to love God. Because He's loved us and given us His Son, Jesus. And, and we want to love other people. And, and the way we can do that is make sure that they have a gospel to actually believe. And so today won't be nice. But I hope it is out of genuineness and out of love. Love for God and love for other people. What we're going to do is look at Jude verses 3 and 4, and there we will be called to contend. And then we're going to look at really the reason, the rationale for why we would contend. And so if you want to go ahead and and look at that appeal uh, in verse 3 with me, uh, it says, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, while I would love to write to you about reconciliation and justification and sanctification and adoption, and forgiveness, and all of the implications of how awesome it is to be raised up with Christ, to be accepted by God, to have a mediator between us and God, and to explore all that that would mean to us, and the richness of those things. While I would love to just talk about how awesome the gospel is, because that should be what we would want to talk about first and foremost, I found it necessary, Jude says, to write appealing to you to contend, to fight, to wage war, to battle for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints.
if we don't take care of protecting what's most important, we can't enjoy what's most important, right? I'd like to talk to you about the most important thing, but if we don't also spend time now and then defending the most important thing, we won't have the most important thing. It's kind of how, how it goes. Makes sense. It would be wrong. It wouldn't be nice. <laughs> it, wouldn't, it wouldn't even be the right thing to, to always want to talk about fighting and battling and this is where it is for us. That, that wouldn't be good. But if there isn't some of that, then we're not going to have anything to enjoy. So then he gets into the rationale. Actually, he's already gotten into the rationale, but we're going to get into the rationale. So if you're a note taker, we'll look at six realities that give us a rationale, a reasoning, a why, so to speak, an explanation for contending for the faith. Something in me wants to hurry and get all six done, and that might happen. Um, Or we'll just kind of see how it goes. Do it next week. Number one. The first reality that gives us a rationale for contending for the faith, number one, the reality of the faith. The reality of the faith. And I'm about ready to emphasize something that I've already emphasized, and I'll keep emphasizing, but since we uh, in our culture kind of have a, um, an allergy um, when it comes to objective things, especially in relation to religion, um, we have this allergy that there's, there's no such thing as the truth. There's um, no such thing as an absolute when it comes to religion, Jesus, God. It's all subjective. It's all feeling. It's all preference. I just want to hammer it home one more time. Uh, just to, just to, to give you a little clarity or something like that. <laughs> a little clarity um, to, to help out with there is such a thing as the faith. We should contend for the faith because there's the reality of the faith. Do notice in verse 3 where he says, contend for the faith. Faith is used different ways in the Bible. Faith is used as some, uh, for something that, that you have. Okay? When you trust in Christ, when you believe in Christ, you put your faith in Christ, it's used that way. That's a super important way that faith is used. But that's not how he's using it here. Faith is used as a virtue. Someone who, who is a model when it comes to trusting in God. When, when terrible things happen in their life, they're just you know that kind of rock of a person and they seem to be uniquely gifted. They're a man or a woman of, of great faith. People we admire. Faith is used that way as a virtue. It's not how he uses it here. Here, notice... The little word, the. Contend for the faith. Not just your faith. That wouldn't even really make sense. Contend for the faith. There's objectivity. Um, It's talking about content. If you want to be fancy, people have spoken of this in the context of, he's talking about the objective body. There's content of Christian doctrine or Christian teaching. And if that's too heady for you, that's fine. You don't need to go there. But that's what he's getting at. He's talking about the faith, the content of Christianity. What makes up Christianity? That's what we're talking about. Something that is tied to history, tied to reality, 
planet Earth, things that really happened. And then we're going to talk about the, the significance or the meaning. That's what the faith is referring to. No doubt. And just stop and think with me. What constitutes Christianity? What, what, what makes up the faith? Well, we start with a belief in God. God who's powerful. God who works in this world. God who is, who is involved in this world. God who is holy. And we could go on and on. And, and who is this God? Well, Christians say He's a triune God. There's one God who eternally exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Don't understand how all that works. It's part of the faith, the Christian faith. The deity of Jesus, the humanity of Jesus, the virgin conception of Jesus, the perfect life of Jesus, the substitution in our place, death of Jesus, paying for sins, right? Rebellion paying for our rebellion, paying for our sins, that He's the one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, that He was raised from the dead bodily, that He's coming again, heaven, hell. There's a Christian morality, right? All these things that are in the Bible make up the faith. And He's saying you need to contend for that. The reason we can contend for it is because it's the faith. It's not just your personal feelings. It's something that actually exists outside of us. Whether we believe it's true or not, it's something that exists. And by the way, that's why it's something we can share and have in common. Do notice in verse 3. Our common salvation. We can all have it in common, even though we don't have very many things in common, because we have this, the faith in common. It's really what unites us. It's why history is important to us as Christians. Well, I would love to just talk more and more about that, just because I know it's something we don't really get. Or we get it, but it's just, we forget and for sure, when you talk to your friends, not for sure, but more than likely, when you say faith, they think of the virtue, they think of a preference, they think of something that is tied to um, fantasy, not reality. Something inside of the, you that you feel and that you made up. And if it works for you, that's great. Jude is not talking about that earnestly contend for the faith. Christian reality. That's what he's talking about. Okay, let's move on. We'll, we'll, we won't leave it alone, but let's move on. A second reality that gives us a rationale for contending for the faith. Number two, the reality of the faith being conclusive. The reality of the faith, the faith, being conclusive. We see this in verse 3. At the latter part, the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Once for all delivered to the saints. It's conclusive. And when a few weeks ago, or a couple of weeks, a weeks ago, when we did an introduction to Jude, Jude, I already covered this stuff. But again, these are the things I would like to talk about every week, realizing it's such a 
underemphasized kind of thing. It's conclusive. Christianity is conclusive. It doesn't mean there aren't ongoing implications. It doesn't mean that God is done. But the faith has a bow on it. It's packaged. The faith is done in this sense. It doesn't mean our faith can't be alive, that we're truly, genuinely, experientially trusting in Jesus. But we're trusting in the truth about Jesus. We're trusting in the person of Jesus, and His work is done. It's conclusive. That's how we can say it's the faith. We're going to contend for it because it's, it's complete, it's done. If it weren't done and it kept changing and, and, and progressing and evolving and getting better, it would be pretty hard to contend for it. We're just trying to keep up with it. But if the work of Jesus Christ is done, complete, now we've got something that we can contend for. And think about it for a moment. All of History, all of human history, according to the Bible, has centered around the person and work of Jesus. Old Testament, anticipating, prophesying, looking forward to the ultimate David, right? The ultimate judge or deliverer, the ultimate king, all the ultimate Messiah, and everything's looking forward to. Jesus coming and fulfilling, and then on the other side of things, we're looking back, not in anticipation like in the old, but in appreciation. And His work is done. And so it's a once and for all faith. It's conclusive. This is really bad for false teachers. Right? but it's really good and assuring for Christians because we're resting in something that's been completed. Not something dead, something done, something sure. The faith, once for all. It's conclusive. You don't need to turn there. You can if you'd like, but I'll read Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 to 3, just emphasizing what hopefully I've already explained. It says, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. This is the Old Testament looking forward. So God has been doing this. God has been working since long ago. But in these last days, these final days, He has spoken to us by His Son. That's pinnacle, high point, apex, whom He appointed the heir of all things. So it's inclusive, everything through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, He sat down, notice the finality of it all, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. It's complete. And and that's an assurance kind of text from Hebrews. And it's showing us He really is the trustworthy one. Yes! Because of that, we have the faith that's once and for all delivered. It's done. And again, that's not suggesting that there's nothing going on now. God is not now sleeping. Jesus sent His Spirit, right? 
He sent His Spirit so that we wouldn't be orphaned. But according to John 14, according to John 16, the Spirit emphasizes Christ to us. Because Christ is the center of everything. And Christ's work is done. So we have the faith that is complete. We can contend for it because it is complete. It is done. It is sure. It is sufficient. How about this? Therefore, no new Christian content. Doesn't mean we can't understand things better. Doesn't mean we can't grow. But since the work of Christ has been done, there's no new Christian content. Sufficient, complete, perfect. That's why in Colossians, Paul can say you've been made complete in Christ. Sufficient. You don't have to go looking for the next thing. You have everything in Christ. And again, this, this is building the rationale for why it would be reasonable, why it would make sense for us to take the fighting stance. You tell me there's new Christian content, those are fighting words. That's actually an attack on the sufficiency of Christ. That's unstabilizing for me in my security. How dare you? His work is done. Sure. Perfect. It's conclusive. This is why, by the way, we actually like to talk about history. We like to talk about the past. I don't want to be so into the past that I'm never thinking about the here and now. You know, it's always the good old days. I mean, God is alive and well now, and so are we. Newsflash. <laughs> okay. But it is why Christians, especially those who are concerned about the faith once and for all delivered, have a definite attraction to Christian history. Because if there isn't anything new, you'd think maybe we could learn some things from Christians who've gone before us. Because it wasn't like there was a new kind of Christianity and then another new kind of Christianity and another new kind of Christianity and another new kind of Christianity. And No. So we've appreciated what God has done in people's lives before us and and helping to understand things. And how about this? Then when cults do come, and false teachers do arise, and Christians say, wait a second, what do we need to believe about God? What do we need to be, believe about Jesus? Is He a human being? Or is He God? Or is He both? So we learn from history. Because it's not changing, it's not improving. Now, people have been wrong and we're wrong. No one's right on about everything, but we appreciate history as Christians because of this. That's why at their best, and they're misused sometimes, at their best, Christian creeds and confessions are super helpful and super good. Okay? I was raised in a church that did a Christian kind of creed, and it was the church I was raised in was, I would say, a dead church. They didn't preach the gospel. Um, they didn't preach the Bible. 
as far as I can remember, you know the best thing about the church? At least we said the right creed every week. (laughs) Now, growing up and then becoming a Christian in college and hearing the gospel and being introduced to what the Bible actually says about things, in my immaturity, I thought creeds are bad. Because the association with me in my mind was dead church didn't preach the gospel, but we did the creed every week. Stand up, sit down, fight, 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 you know. (laughs) But in reality, what that creed said was, was right. Interestingly enough, so many of those things were birthed out of Jude kinds of things. Because a false teacher's coming and people are being preyed upon by these false teachers who, by the way, were all saying they believe the Bible. And so what did Christian leaders do? Well, they dug in and had to sort out the answers to these things. And then in summary form, to help Christians like us, would say, here's a creed, something we agree to, is is the idea, the meaning. It's It's to say, I believe. I believe in one God. That kind of thing. Deity and humanity of Jesus. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. These are right things, good things. Important things, actually. And so we appreciate them. Again, they can be misused. But we have to remember if it's a once and for all delivered faith. If we're coming up with new things, it's probably a problem. And if we defend ourselves by saying, but you know what? I can show it to you in the Bible. Just know that that's what most cult leaders in history have said. Trying to look at the Bible as a whole, what does it teach? How can we sort this out? So we don't want to ignore the past because we have a once and for all delivered to the saints' faith. Should we keep talking about that or move on? We probably should move on. Maybe I'll say one more thing about it. (laughs) Even the Protestant reformers who championed the solas of the Reformation, the alones, and they said, it's not sacred tradition and the Bible. It's Scripture alone. Sola Scriptura. That's where we get our authority. Ultimate authority comes from Scripture and Scripture alone. They didn't mean, they didn't mean that they couldn't learn anything from anyone who'd ever gone before them. We know they didn't mean that. Because if you read their writings, they're quoting all kinds of people who'd gone before them and agreeing with them nine times out of ten to make up a number. A lot, in other words. 
They weren't trying to reinvent the wheel. They didn't want to be like those who they saw as cultists who said Bible alone and they meant something different by it. Like we're the first Christians. They didn't do that. That's why the Protestant reformers didn't deny the Trinity. And the Bible teaches the Trinity. But so did their opponents. But if it's what the Bible teaches, we'll affirm that. Deity of Jesus. Humanity of Jesus. And the list goes on and on and on. So again, I'm a sola scriptura guy. And I'm going to preach the Bible. And I don't want to preach creeds and confessions. But at the same time, appreciate these things are taught in the Bible. And let's at least learn that Christians who've gone before us haven't always tried to reinvent the wheel because it's the faith. Okay, let's move on. Number three, a third reality that gives us a rationale for contending for the faith is the reality of responsibility. The reality of responsibility. This is really tied to one word in verse three. The faith that was once for all, here's our word, delivered to the saints. Delivered is a responsibility word. Some have translated it entrusted. If it helps you, you can jot that down. It's been once and for all entrusted to the saints. It's a stewardship idea. Some have said you should literally translate it handed down. It's been once and for all handed down, delivered, as in entrusted, as in you're responsible for it. And here is Jude writing this letter to Christians like us saying, it's been once and for all, it's objective, it's complete, but it's been given to you as a stewardship. You need to protect this. This is a responsibility. You need to contend for the faith because it's a responsibility of ours to contend for the faith. And he's not writing to Christian leaders, and I'm not speaking to Christian leaders, I'm speaking to you and to, to, to you as believers There's a responsibility. The athletic image is a good one. You've been handed the baton. Don't drop it. You have a responsibility to get it to the next runner. And so you hold on and you hold on tightly. And that is part of your job. So we we contend in that kind of way. It's a stewardship. It's for our benefit, yes, but it's also for the benefit of others. And in our context in Jude, it makes all the sense in the world because the stakes are high. Eternal life, salvation, acceptance from God, and condemnation. Hold on to the baton. We're not talking about things that don't matter. We're talking about the faith. Cling. Pass on. Safe. Secure. Most important thing you do as far as safety is concerned kind of idea. We understand this to a degree with parents and children. People who have children are protective of their children and they see it as a stewardship kind of thing. We can all understand that. So they're protective. They're vigilant. I don't know if you've seen the movie trailer for this new movie, this new Owen Wilson movie called No Escape. You seen the movie trailer for it? Suck me in right away. I'm like, oh. 
here's this guy who, who gets transferred to, a, to another country with his family, and it's going to be exciting because that's how it is on cable TV when you get a house in another place, and everything's wonderful, and you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> no problems as long as you live in another place. Anyway, so he gets transferred, they move, you know, they're unsure, it's going to be wonderful, it's going to be great to live in another country, and all this jazz, and, and then all of a sudden there's civil unrest, and a war breaks out, and now all of a sudden this dad has to do unthinkable things in order to be valiant, in order to save the lives of his children and his wife. I'm not endorsing the movie because critics say it's, morally rank, it's a morally rank slab of cultural exploitation. <laughs> and my wife already told me she wouldn't go see it with me. <sighs> but the idea is good. Watch the trailer. Okay. <laughs> Save your money. To be brave, to be valiant, to see yourself as possessing a stewardship. It's been delivered to you, so how about this, friends? On our watch, let's do a good job. The faith, once and for all delivered, once and for all entrusted, so we want to do a good job on our watch. And if need be, act valiantly. It's good to fight in the right setting, in the right way, the right kind of context. And we all know that. But we don't always know that because we don't always know there is such a thing as the faith. Once and for all, entrusted. But if we value it for our benefit and for future generations' benefit... We want to do it. Think about this from a human perspective. I mean, God is sovereign. God's in control. If, you know, if people don't praise Him, rocks will. I mean, but from a human perspective, because God does use means, every one of us in this room who is a Christian, from a human perspective, is a Christian because other men and women who've gone before us have held on to the baton so it could be passed on. It's talking about preservation, keeping, protecting. I'm probably not going to do very many great things in my life. Amen? (laughs) You know, I at least want to do that simple thing. Do my part. prioritizing and protecting the gospel. It's pretty ironic. Um, Maybe just one more thing since I brought up kids and we'll move on. It's ironic to me and tragic how many parents in the name of, and even non-parents, just older people, in the name of reaching the next generation do anything but prioritize and protect the once and for all delivered to the saints' faith. It's like, oh, we're going to compromise this and sell out this and just forget about this and not prioritize that because you know what? This is what my kids want.
Well, you don't do that with nutrition, do you? You don't do that when they're real little, do you? I mean, I, I don't get it. The greatest thing you could do for anybody would be to be committed to the priority of the gospel as well as, therefore, because they go hand in hand, the protection of the gospel. I mean, not to go too far back in our history, I don't mean this church, but in our recent history, I mean, the church growth movement is a classic example of all kinds of people who should have known better and totally selling out, totally compromising the gospel because we've got to reach the next generation. It didn't work. It was dumb. It was foolish. The once and for all delivered to the saints' faith been delivered it's been entrusted it's the most important thing we could do for any generation ours and others it's awesome the truth about jesus christ the truth about who god is the truth about how god saves okay let's move on a fourth reality that gives us a rationale for contending for the faith the reality of this faith belonging to the saints. The reality of this conclusive faith belonging to the saints. Looks like we're going to need to end here. But let's at least get it started. The faith, end of verse 3, that was once for all delivered to the saints. Now, before we talk about the significance and what it means, I suppose we should talk about who the saints are. Just, just quickly. Many of you know. Some of you don't know. Who are the saints? The saints are the ones who are really extraordinarily, amazingly godly, Right? And maybe if enough time passes and maybe if we can somehow try to prove that they did a miracle, we can canonize them and we can name cathedrals after them because they're the saints, right? They're the holy ones. Saint so-and-so. Actually, they are the holy ones because that's what saint means, holy one. But it doesn't mean those who are inherently holy, extraordinarily holy, the ones who are the amazing, amazing, amazingly godly ones. It doesn't mean that. That's, that's folklore. That's religious lore. The saints are those who are holy, set apart, because they're related to Jesus. They themselves are not holy, but because they're united to Christ by faith, they're holy. And they're just the normal Joe Schmo chump Christians like you <laughs> and me. <laughs> they're the saints. First Corinthians is the classic example because we all know, here's a little sarcasm for you, the Corinthians, they were the super godly ones in the New Testament. No, they weren't. Right? What, what, and people, Bible teachers say, Paul's message to the church at Corinth was, stop acting like Corinthians. Because they were so ungodly. They were so messed up. It's like worst church award. 
Chapter 1, verse 2. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified, notice, in Christ, because they're related to Him by faith, in Christ, called to be saints, together with all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord. See, that's how they become saints. They call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Ah, oh, the saints are Christians. So that's an aside, but we just need to make sure we think clearly. The saints are the Christians. So now if we go back to our text, the once and for all delivered faith, and it's been delivered to the clergy, the bishops. No, it's been delivered to the saints, the people like the Corinthians. The Joe Schmoes, right? It's us. It's been entrusted. It's been delivered. It's been given to us. And so it's our responsibility. It's our privilege. It belongs to us. This is, again, really good news for us. It's bad news for false teachers. It's bad news for false teachers because so many times what false teachers do, not every time, but so many times, it's because I have something, right, that you don't. I have special glasses that came from heaven so I can read the plates, right? I have a fresh word from God because God told me this, so I'm a God-told-me person and you're not. I have... You know, the bigger necklace and medallion and the bigger, better, fancier robe with more gold on it and all of this sort of stuff and a giant chair that I can sit on and I have all this stuff and you don't. So you have Gnosticism, you have mysticism. Here's your big word for the day. Sacerdotalism. Don't look it up now. The once and for all faith has not been delivered to those people. It's been delivered to you. So it's your responsibility, but it's also your privilege. And when a false teacher says, who do you think you are? Every day St. Patrick's Day in my life. <laughs> I'm a saint, Right? I've got the faith. I think I'm a saint, and the faith has been given to me. And so don't tell me that you have something that you can hold over my head and intimidate me with. Because I've got the faith, the faith with a bow on it. And I don't need your extra books of the Bible. I don't need your extra words from God. I don't need your big throne. I don't need your intimidation. I don't need, I don't need, I don't need because I am a saint by virtue of the fact that I'm united to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's good. It's good. You know, in church history, sometimes this has been a problem because we we overreact and say we don't need all the sacerdotalism. Let me use it again. Such a cool word to use. It's when all the big wigs do all the religion for you, Okay. You have mediators, human mediators. And we, we, have to re, we respond and we say, we don't need any authorities. Well, the Bible actually teaches authority. 
But how do we do this then? We have the once and for all delivered to the saints' faith, and yet we have authorities. And so in church history, faithful Christians have even tried to come up with ways to talk about this. And people like me would say, I reject magisterial authority. To use another big word. Holding it above people's heads. I'm better than you. I'm closer to God. You need me to get to God. That kind of stuff. But the Bible teaches authority, so we're going to label it ministerial authority. Servant authority. So there are church offices. The Bible teaches them. But there's also accountability with one another's. No one is above. We're all equals. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. And it's not always nice and neat. This magisterial thing is nicer and neater. It's just the big hand of the law. But it's not biblical. So how can we function? How can we function as a church and actually have preachers and teachers and elders and deacons and those kinds of things? And yet we're all brothers and sisters in Christ and we're all accountable to one another. So the church just try to work this kind of stuff out to try to be biblical. But that's an aside. I just want us to see, at least for right now, we're called as saints to fight. Because we as saints have been given the faith to appreciate, to embrace, to thank God for, but also to preserve and to protect. It's a great, great thing. Let me end now, and we'll pick up next time, by by reminding you of what Jude didn't get to talk about. The Lord Jesus Christ came here not because we deserve for him to come here, but he came here because God loved us when we weren't lovely. And God maintaining his justice and maintaining his wrath even, which is good and holy and righteous, sends his voluntary son to be executed to pay for our rebellion. He did it voluntarily because He too loved us when we weren't lovely, when we didn't deserve it. And then He experienced the judgment, the full, undiluted judgment from God. And He did it on our behalf because He loves us. The price had to be paid either by him or by you. And then he rose again from the dead, the victor, the powerful one, so that we might know God, so that we might have new life, so that we might know what it means to be forgiven for the sins you have committed, the ones you're committing right now, and the ones you will commit when you walk out the door. It's the faith. And he's coming again, not to judge us, if we've trusted in Him, He's coming again to rescue. And He's coming to make every wrong right. And this is the once and for all delivered to the saints' faith. Know it. Know it better. Know it deeper. Know it from the Bible. Know it from Christians who've gone before us. Know it so you can praise God for it. Know it so you can believe it. And know it so you can valiantly protected. Father, thank you so much for 
being a great and amazing Savior. Thank you that you have given us everything that we need in Christ. Thank you that you're the God of history, that you're involved, that you're engaged, that you've given us your spirit. Thank you for your church. Thank you for what you do in this world. And thank you for the fact that there is perfect and sure hope in Jesus Christ, the resurrected Savior. In his name we pray, amen.